Well, welcome to this special episode of the Candeo Equipping Podcast. This is Jake, and I'm joined by my lovely co-host, my wife, Sarah. Yes. Yeah. Thanks for letting me join you. Thanks for for joining me in this conversation. So uh, you probably either just got done listening to the message from Sunday, or you have listened to it at some point throughout the week. And, and what I referenced in the benediction was that there was so much in to cover in this message that it really could have taken six messages to, to hit all of the little nuances, fun rabbit trails. I mean, in preparing sermons, there is so much that gets left on the chopping floor as it Mm -hmm. were that, that, one of the things that I do and what something that's distinctive about Candeo, I think, is that all of our messages uh, are discussed by the elders the week before. And so the elders give input, the elders help uh, in matters of interpretation. And so that that way we can get on the same page. And so what the message that's being brought on a Sunday morning really is the message of our elder team and not just of an individual. I think that's something that is unique about us and it's something that we really value. And I think a lot of our members have come to really value. What some of you might not know is that in addition to that, uh, at least when I'm preaching, a lot of times Sarah will hear that message two or three times before it actually goes out on a Sunday morning. So Mm -hmm. if you want to skip a service, you haven't, (laughs) you haven't missed the message. But the reason I do that is for a few reasons. One, Sarah and I learn differently. And so Sarah's much more of a linear thinker. I'm much more of a, I don't know what you would call it, conceptual, so yeah. circular. Yeah. I don't know. And so for me, I go, I, I need someone else's perspective here from a learning standpoint. Uh, Sarah's a woman. And so that's a that's a different mm-hmm. perspective. I, I have... Sue me for having a blind spot of not knowing the perspective of a woman, right? So No, but uh, I appreciate that you recognize that and want a woman's insight or views. Yeah. And so for me that that's important. And and kind of thirdly, Sarah's Sarah's a godly woman, not just a woman, but a godly woman. And so uh she brings out different things that are helpful for me as I prepare uh, my sermons. So one of the things we were talking about, I mean, it's always the case that there are things that get left out of the message that can't get hit. It seemed that this message ending James in James chapter five, it seemed like this was a unique message where there was such a pile of things left on the chopping floor that I honestly felt like to not at least address some of these things in some sort of way would, would not be serving our church well. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also didn't want to have it be a three hour sermon because I know you guys are in your living rooms with your kiddos and they could just hit pause. They could just hit pause. <laughs> yeah. Put them, at, send them to nap time and finish the message. <laughs> didn't think that was helpful. Right. So, uh, so we really just want to kind of dialogue a little bit about some of these things and, and honestly pull you in to some conversations that Sarah and I have had over the last several days as, as I've wrestled with what to keep in the message, what not to keep in the message. And, and Sarah's real great at uh, asking great questions. So one of the things that didn't make it in the message, okay, was when we get to James chapter five and verse 14, he says, is any among you suffering or is any among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church 
and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And so two things that I just couldn't fit into the message as it relates to verse 14. One is the initiative on the part of the sick person to call the elders. And I think this is, this is fairly important because what we see in the book of James isn't that James is telling the elders, okay, your job is to go knocking door to door, trying to find out who in your church is sick. Like that, he's not saying that should be an active role of the elders where, well, it's your job to find out if someone's sick, even if they haven't made you aware of that. And I do think one of the things that can be, uh, frustrating is not the right word, but I think maybe an unreasonable expectation to have of church leadership with that, especially with a church of our size would be to that, to expect that our elders know everything that's happening in everybody's lives at all time. Mm -hmm. Uh, we try our best to, to be intimately involved in the lives of the people in our church, but, uh, it would, it would just be unreasonable to go, well, well, why didn't you call Mm -hmm. when that, when, when this thing happened or that person died or this, uh, you know, this person's sick or whatever, it's like, we don't know what we don't know. And if you knew one, did you go to them? And two, you can let us know those things. Mm -hmm. Like, Like we want to know if there are people at our church who are sick, who, who want us to pray for them, you know? And so that was one thing that, uh, that I think it's a small thing, but it's something to draw out, especially in a church Candeo size. If you're used to, especially a smaller church where it's kind of like a small town, like everybody knows everybody, everybody knows each other, each other's business and word just gets around. Uh, that's not really the dynamic in a church of a thousand people. And so all that to say, uh, have, have some grace with us as your elders. Um, if you didn't get a call from us when you were sick, it wasn't because we knew and didn't care. Mm -hmm. It was because we just didn't know. Mm -hmm. And so another thing to kind of note in this, uh, and and a lot of commentators, uh, will kind of point this out is that in verse 14, it, it seems as though the, the posture of the person who is sick, it's, it's a sickness that, uh, that doesn't even allow that person to be able to go to the elders. And so if any of if any among you is sick, let him call the elders of the church and they're to pray over him. And so uh, some commentators take that pray over him to mean like this person is bedridden. Like it's not, it's not getting calls to pray for somebody's cold, right? It's getting calls to pray for somebody's ailment that, that kind of like relegates them to their bed mm-hmm. right now don't hear me saying that uh that if you're if you're if you're not so sick that you can't get out of bed don't call the elders you know like <laughs> that's not what i'm saying but what i am saying is is it seems as though there's a there's a uh, uh an order of priority kind of like a a triage mm-hmm. as it were to go some sicknesses like that may be more common it's like that's that's great. We will certainly pray for you in that. Um, but it help us out, you know, in, in kind of gauging the degree to which, uh, this sickness is, is ailing you. And we're not going to, re- we're not going to say no, just because it's like, no, you're not sick enough. It's like, no, <laughs> we, we, we care if you're calling us, it's clear that, that, that there's something going on. And so, so if someone were to be sick 
and they want an elder mm-hmm. to pray for them. And I think something to point out, especially just like you talked about in your sermon, is physically sick, yes, but spiritually sick for sure, mm-hmm. too. So if if you are spiritually sick or your spouse is spiritually sick mm-hmm. and you want prayer, what what would someone do? How would they contact all the elders or an elder yeah. to pray for them? Yeah. And so that's a great question. One of the things, and one of the things we, we expect of our members and we strongly encourage is that our members are involved in connection groups. And so every elder of Candeo oversees a subset of our connection groups. And so mm-hmm. that's why if, if you're in a connection group, and even if you aren't a member, uh, you'll notice that you have an elder and his wife popping into your connection group once every four weeks, once every five weeks, mm-hmm. something like that. And honestly, for us, from that's part of the ways that we wanted that the reason we did that was because we wanted to increase our presence with our members because we go if if you're going to be a member of candeo we want you to be in the context of a connection group and so how do we best care for our members is we continue to increase the proximity of each one of our elders with our members and the way that we do that is by jumping into our connection group so if you're a member and you're in a connection group, you already know kind of who your elder is that at least oversees your group. And I would say contact that elder Mm because hopefully you've got some level of relationship or have had some interaction with them. And then that elder, I mean, will literally, you know, leave that phone call with you or that email, whatever it is, and he'll turn around and text all of us. We just, Mm -hmm. we have an elder thread and we'll set up a time to be able to, to pray with you, whether that's, that's you coming to us or us coming to you. Mm -hmm. Um, we've done that several times and it's, it's been a real delightful thing for us to whatever, regardless of whatever we had scheduled for our elder meeting to, to carve out time in that time to be able to pray for, for our members who are either physically or spiritually sick. Now, if, if you're a member and you're not in a connection group, uh, one, I say get in a connection group, but two, I go, Hey, uh, shoot us an email, go to the website and just click the contact us thing and send an email and, and let us know. And, and our, our, uh, office coordinator will forward that on, uh, to one of us, uh, elders who are on staff and we'll be able to communicate with the team that way. Yeah. So yeah, we, we want you to do that. We would, we would hope that that would, that as a result of this passage, that elders praying for those who are physically sick and spiritually sick mm. would do nothing but increase and in that we would we would be spending more time uh, engaging our people in that way. So yeah. I think that would be awesome. Um, another thing that that I didn't wasn't able to get into in the message on Sunday was was what's with this anointing with oil? Like, Thanks for asking that, because that was my next question. <laughs> what in the world does that mean? <laughs> uh there's a spectrum here of belief, uh, clearly, but I mean, all the way from totally ignoring it to there, there are some, uh, faith traditions where people won't leave the house without a little flask of oil because they take this to be so, uh, they take this so literally in it's like in, in it, in its urgency of, they don't want to be in a situation where they're with someone who is potentially dying mm. and not have 
some olive oil. And so there's actually like markets for this, right? Where you can, you can buy like oil, olive oil specifically for anointing. You know, this is where the, the Catholic church tradition gets it of, of kind of like administering last rites where the oil is seen as this, as, as a, uh, maybe sacramental would be a way to say it, where it's this kind of uh, like anointing somebody, and it and it's closely tied to the state of their soul, mm-hmm. uh, whether they've whether they are anointed or not. And so um, there's all the way there. Uh, there's for some. I mean, honestly, the it, this is seen as kind of like medicinal. And so when you think of in the first century when James would have been writing this, uh, oil was often used uh, for medicinal purposes. So all of you like essential oils people are like, yep, yeah, you're going to see my Facebook posts later. Like, get your anointing oils, right? <laughs> now, do you think that's like... Like what kind of oil do you think they'd use? You know, I definitely don't, frankincense. Maybe, yeah, maybe maybe DoTerra will come out with a <laughs> with an anointing oil specifically, right? Or Young Living. I don't know all of them. There's a bunch of them. Just the fact that I know two probably says too much, but <laughs> but it was it was it was used often. Um, so you think of it's it's this picture of uh, of like when someone gets done riding their riding a horse. And they take the saddle off, and they'll they'll rub the 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 horse's muscles down with oil. Um, you think of the same thing with like a massage, you know, nowadays. But it, it was seen as as a, a medicinal thing, like like anointing someone with oil was could could be in reference to uh, a form of medicine back then. And so some interpretations of this passage say, well. You anoint the person with oil. What that's referring to is is not only trusting in the Lord to heal people, but also saying there is also a there is also room for God to use medicine hmm. to heal somebody. Now, what I don't think this is saying is that elders are now um, now play the role of of spiritual pharmacists. You know, where it's like, oh, well, now elders are to be administering actual medicine. Um, that's where I go. I don't think that's what that's saying, where that's the elder's role. But the interpretation that would see this anointing with oil as more being medicinal in nature would see it as saying, hey, don't so over-spiritualize uh, miraculous healing that you totally neglect the the grace of modern medicine mm-hmm. that the Lord has sovereignly given us. Like God can affect healing through faithful prayer and also through common means mm-hmm. through the hands of doctors and surgeons and treatments and medicine. Um, and so I, I think there's a principle there that's helpful. Uh, I'm not quite sure though, that that's mainly what James is trying to get to because Often what we see in the, in the scriptures is that anointing with oil is a kind of a, a symbolic way of setting somebody apart for a particular work of the Lord. And so what I think James is kind of giving a nod to here is that in a symbolic way, when the elders come to a person who is either physically sick or spiritually sick, that the anointing with oil is 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 a symbolic gesture to say, God, we have set this person apart so that you 
we are praying earnestly that it would be you who affect the healing in this person. Because then later on, when you see in verse 15, um, that it's the Lord who raises that person up. It's not the oil. It's not, it's not the, the hands of, of the people even around them that it's God and God alone who affects the healing. And so the anointing with oil here, I, th- I think what James is saying here is that, is that that's a symbolic gesture. It's a physical, uh, it's a physical act that symbolizes a setting apart of the person for the work of the Lord, particularly when it comes to the Lord's work being healing purposes, mm-hmm. either physically or spiritually. And so that, those are, those are a few different interpretations that, um, that we just weren't able to get into on, on Sunday. And so kind of the big question, and I addressed this in the message, but I wasn't able to devote a ton of time into exactly why I went this direction with it. And the big question in this is, is, is this talking about physical healing or is this talking about spiritual healing? Um, and I think the, the sticky part of this is particularly because of verse 15, and the prayer of faith will save the sick person. There seems to be like a, there seems to be a very definitive, that's a definitive statement. Mm-hmm. It says will save the sick person, not may, not might, not could. It's just like the, James is not leaving it. it had, he doesn't envision any scenario where this doesn't happen. Right. And so I think that's where this, this scripture gets kind of sticky and it's a hard one to interpret because you go, if this is talking about physical healing, then, then what this must mean is that if I don't pray hard, if, if I pray and someone doesn't get healed, either myself or the person that I'm praying for, if, if they don't get healed, it's because I didn't pray hard enough. It's because I didn't have enough faith, have enough faith. You know, it's because it, it wasn't because God wasn't strong enough to do it. It was because I was too weak to pray in such a way that he would do it. Like that's kind of the logical conclusion to, to that, to, if you think this is purely a physical healing thing. Um, and there are plenty of, uh, of belief systems that, that would advocate for that, a kind of health, wealth, and prosperity, maybe a bit more of a hyper charismatic, not a bit more, but a, kind of a hyper charismatic movement, like a name it and claim it sort of, of system of belief that would say, no, like we're, we're called to, uh, we're called to ask, pray to God for healing. And we're called to do it with the prayer of faith. And if you don't get healed, it's because you lacked faith. And that, I think that's an incredibly discouraging and incredibly dangerous way to see this. And, and the reason why, this is the reason why uh, I say that, and I wasn't able to get into this really at all in the message, was because if you look down uh, at verse 17, what James is doing is he's, he's emphasizing prayer. Like the main point of, this, of these verses is prayer. And we don't want to we don't want to miss that being the main point. Like the community of faith is to be a community defined by fervent prayer in sickness or in health in suffering or in, uh, or in joy. Like we're to be defined by fervent prayer. That's the main point. Um, 
But what James is saying, like when he goes into verse 17, he uses this Elijah example as a, as a righteous person uh, who prayed and his prayer was powerful in its effect. And the reason why I said in the message that um, like certainly God can and does physically heal people, but there is a, there is also a category where we need to understand that, that the greatest danger is not that you would be physically sick. The greatest danger is that you would be physically well and spiritually sick Mm -hmm. and not know it. And what James says here with Elijah is he's, he's referencing back to a passage in first Kings chapter 17. And so the prophet Elijah is, uh, so there's, there's this King, his name is Ahab and Ahab. If you read, and I'll just encourage you to do this, uh, to understand this passage in James better read first Kings, uh, really chapter 16 through 18. This will help you understand kind of, kind of James's flow of thought, but there's a King, uh, whose name is Ahab. And in first Kings 1630, it says, but Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight more than all who were before him. So if you read a few chapters before this in First Kings, you go, man, there were a lot of bad kings kind of during this time. And it's like, yeah, and Ahab was the worst of them. Like he did what was evil in the Lord's sight more than all before him. And so uh, then as if following the sin of Jeroboam, son of Naboth, were not enough, he married Jezebel the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. So like, it's almost like as though following in the footsteps of the evil kings before him weren't enough. He, he like saw, like saw their bet and raised them a few, you know, it's like, it's as though he was trying to be the worst. Right. And this is where, uh, this is where Elijah is brought into the picture as a prophet of God, who in chapter 17 comes to Ahab and says, as, as the Lord God of Israel lives in whose presence I stand, there will be no dew or rain during these years, except by my command. And so what he's doing, what we see in the old Testament is that a famine is often a sign of God's judgment upon a people. And so what he's saying is that Ahab, you are like the worst of the worst Kings that have presided over Israel. And so what God is doing to enact judgment is it's not going to rain and it goes, it goes on to not rain. So then God tells Elijah, all right, you said that to Ahab now go into the, go into the desert and I'm going to take care of you. And Elijah's fed by ravens. God comes to him again, says now go to this city and there you will meet a widow who is going to take care of you. So Elijah goes, meets the widow. Uh, this is the story where the widow only had so much oil and so much uh, flour and God continued to sustain those supplies, like to, to uh, regenerate those supplies, you know, for as long as Elijah was there. Um, but then what we see in verse 17 of chapter 17 is after this, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. So this is the widow's son. His illness got worse until he stopped breathing. So she said to Elijah, man of God, why are you here? Have you come to call attention to my iniquity so that my son is put to death? And so what we saw in James chapter five was a, a, at least a loose connection, at least a connection that says sometimes physical sickness is a result of sin. Now that's not always the case because 
what we saw in John chapter nine was when uh, Jesus comes across this paralyzed man and his disciples ask who sinned this man or his parents so that he would be, uh, so that he would be lame. Jesus says, no, no, no. It's not because either of them sinned. It was so that the works of God may be displayed in him. So we know that it's not always because of sin that, uh, that people are sick, but sometimes it is. And it seemed like this widow had a paradigm where, because her son had died, she's asking Elijah, is this because of my sins? Mm. And Elijah, uh, he, he doesn't really assure her that it's not, but we can kind of infer because in the next verses, uh, he says, give me your son. He takes her son upstairs, prays over him and raises him from the dead. So it would seem as though if, if this was the judgment of God on the widow as a result of her sin, then it wouldn't make sense that then Elijah would raise him from the dead again, right? It's like, no, it would seem as though God's judgment is final. She has, her sin has been revealed. And the thing that, the thing that would be highlighted in first Kings wouldn't be the raising of the son from the dead, but it would be her turning in repentance. Yeah, he would call her to repentance. He would call her to repentance right. and then possibly raise her son from the dead. But he goes straight to raising him from the dead. That's a really big deal that that account is in first Kings 17 because then what we do is we fast forward to uh, first Kings 18 where now Elijah is going to present himself uh, to Ahab once again, who has set up these altars of Baal and the Asherah poles. And this is that whole scenario where, uh, where Elijah kind of has this duel, right? With the, with the prophets of Baal, all the prophets of Baal against Elijah. Right. And he says, hey, uh, let's see whose God is God. And so let's go up to this mountain and I'm going to set up my altar. You set up your altar. I'll let you have the first pick of sacrifices and I'll give you uh, as much time of the day as possible. And so you have more time and you have you have your pick of any of the best sacrifices. So if your gods are real, they're going to really like that. They got the best meat, Mm -hmm. you know, and the prophets of Baal spend all day like dancing around, they're cutting themselves. Elijah is like making fun of them, you know, go. Is this where he says like, maybe they can't hear you. Maybe they can't hear you. He he says it. He says at one point, like maybe they're relieving themselves. Like (laughs) maybe, maybe your God went to the bathroom. Like maybe that's where he's at. Maybe, (laughs) maybe he's reading a book, you know, on the toilet. I mean, that's what Elijah is saying. I love scripture that just has just some, some comical flair to it. Like seriously, like go, Seriously, go read First uh, Kings sixteen through eighteen. It, it's funny in this account. So they do all that; nothing happens. They're, what they're wanting to do is they're wanting fire to come from the sky to engulf their sacrifice and prove that that their gods, these prophets of Baal, that their god is the true god. Nothing happens. So then this is the this is the story where Elijah, uh, it's, it's it's Elijah's turn now, right? And so he. Uh, he not only calls on God to receive this sacrifice to prove that he is the one true God for the glory of his name to all who are watching into the nations before Elijah does that is he asks that the sacrifice be doused with water time and time and time and time again. So it's like, it's almost as though to say like, there's, there's no trickery going on here. It's not like Elijah is saying, Oh, look over there. And he's like striking matches under his cloak. Try to get this. Like, that's not going to work with your soaking wet sacrifice. Right. Mm. So 
it's just a soaking wet sacrifice. Elijah calls in the name of the Lord. The fire of God comes down from heaven and engulfs the altar. And then what we see in, so this is verse 38 of chapter 18. Then the Lord's fire fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, and the dust. And it licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the when all the people saw it, they fell face down and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. So what Elijah did up on Mount Carmel with this whole scenario was to prove that the Lord God, he is the only God, and to turn the people of Israel in repentance from their idolatry. Mm. Like the whole this whole scene, this whole reference is so that the people of God would turn from their idolatry, would turn from their sin, would confess their sin, repent and turn to the one true God. Okay. Now this is where you go, okay, big deal. And you can see why I couldn't put this in the message, right? Because you have to recount this because this is important because then you see after the, after the people turn in repentance, then Elijah, um, all right. So let me find this here. So at the beginning of verse 18, before this whole song and dance with the prophets of Baal, God says, so it says in verse 18, after a long time, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, go and present yourself to Ahab. I will send rain on the surface of the land. So before Elijah does this whole thing with the prophets of Baal, God tells him, I'm going to send rain rain on the land. Fast forward, fire consumes the altar, people turn to repentance. And then at the end of chapter 18, uh, so Ahab went to eat and drink, but Elijah went up to the summit of Carmel. He bent down on the ground and put his face between his knees. He said to his servant, go, go up and look toward the sea. What he's doing here, like when he bends down, puts his face to his knees, what, this is where we go. I think this is where he's praying for the rain that God had already said he was going to bring. Mm. So he's praying in, in accordance to the revealed will of God. God had already said, I'm going to make it rain. And now he's praying. Now that the people have turned from their sin and repentance, Elijah is praying that God would do what he said he would do. And so then the servant goes, sees a cloud off in the distance, and it it comes in rain. Why is all this important? Okay. And I lost my spot in James here. So we'll get back there. Why is all this important? It's because if James was trying to make the point that the main thing he's thinking about here is physical healing, then why would he not have referenced Elijah raising the widow's son from the dead? Mm. He references the rain. He references the rain because the rain was the sign of the people's repentance from their idolatry, from their sin. It wasn't, if, if, if he's trying to only communicate a physical reality, which I, which I said on Sunday, like it's not as though God doesn't heal people. It's not as though he doesn't do miraculous physical works of healing. He absolutely does. But what else is in view here in James? I think what James has more in view, at least primarily in view is a greater spiritual healing that God wants to bring about in his people. 
Now, if that's primary, certainly physical healing is secondary. But like I said in the message, when we see Jesus healing people physically, it's so that it's so that he can show that he has the power to also forgive sin. So physical healing would have been connected with proving the ability to bring greater spiritual healing. And so that's why I think when we're in James chapter five, the flow of thought here goes from uh, calling the elders to pray over the sick person, which sick simply means to be weak. And it's often used to mean be weak in conscience and to be weak in faith and so, and, and sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes a weakness of faith is a result of continual sin, is a result of unrepentant sin. And so it's an appropriate uh, a category that we need to have that, that we ought to be concerned for each other's spiritual sickness. And that's why in the last verses of James chapter five, in verses 19 and 20, we talked about... Um, if any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, that person, that per, let that person know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sin. I think that's why. And, and then he just drops the mic. He doesn't do any like, give my greetings to X, Y, and Z, like grace and peace to you, all this stuff. Like James just literally ends his message <laughs> Right there, like, yeah, drops the mic and walks away and says, as if to say all of these things, like I started off this book saying, consider it pure joy when you face trials of various kinds, like don't let the trials of this life weaken your faith and lead you in to unrepentant sin or lead you to repent or lead you to forsaking the faith. And now he's ending the book saying, yeah. And now in light of all these things that I said, in light of all these things that show what true living faith is, now it's your job as the community of faith to help ensure that one another stay in the faith, like continue on in the faith. And one of the ways that you do that is by calling out unrepentant sin, just like Elijah did for the nation of Israel. That was the whole purpose for what Elijah was doing was so that God's greatness would be put on display and that the people would turn in repentance from their sin. So I have a lot of questions. I'm sure. I'm sure. And I do too. Like what before, just real quick before you ask your question, like, one thing that I think is really helpful in this, because th- this is an incredibly complex portion of scripture, um, I would just say, be wary of people who are incredibly dogmatic on one absolute interpretation of this text. Because I'm just telling you, right, like I've spent a few weeks studying just these verses and and it's been hard to find a consensus on, mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. what this means. Like, and this is from like pastors and theologians that I respect. And it's like some of them say very different things about this text. And so I just go, um, don't get so dogmatic on one absolute interpretation. This is, a, this is an impossible text, almost impossible for us to not bring our presuppositions into it. If you were a cessationist before you read this, you're going to read it as a cessationist. If you're a continuationist before you read it, you're going to read it as a continuationist. What I'm saying is don't be so dogmatic that it, one, becomes a point of contention between you and believers and ultimately uh, offends the principle of love that we see in the book of 1 Corinthians 
for like for example, where where love needs to be the overarching um, trait attribute of God's people in issues of even theological dispute. Like I don't see this as an absolute primary issue, um, and so I say. I've got my view on this, uh, but I'm going to be wary of being absolutely dogmatic about it and dying on this hill. So I say all that. Don't ask any questions. No, no, I'm not saying don't ask any questions. (laughs) I'm just saying, I'm just saying for those of you who are listening, don't hear my answers to these questions as being like etched in stone, thus saith the Lord. I, I can't have that, that interpretation and that posture in this conversation. Right. Which is before I ask my question, it's it's encouraging to me and also interesting to see that James starts the book with, um, you know, trials of various kinds, ends it this way, but in the middle, a very common phrase that we see in the book of James is steadfastness, mm-hmm. to be steadfast in suffering, to be patient, long-suffering and suffering. So just an encouragement to us as we look at, at this text, what are we to be in that mm-hmm. or to be steadfast and long-suffering? Yeah. But you, you keep using the phrase of spiritually sick, and I know you defined it on Sunday, but mm-hmm. just to, to redefine it and... I think it can be confusing. Is this someone who's not a believer that we could pray for them to turn mm. to the Lord in saving faith? Or is it someone who is a believer mm. who is weak in their faith, maybe doubting or, like you said, in sin or maybe darkness or depression? Or how, how would you mm. how would you define it? Yeah, I think, I mean... Uh, I think it's I think it's for believers, because unbelievers aren't spiritually sick. Sick, they're spiritually dead. Okay. And so. And we know the will of God is to pray for those people for to come to saving faith. Come to saving faith. Not only that, but even just in the text itself, in verse twelve. Well, I mean, back up in verse seven, really, of chapter five. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be patient. So my view. Uh, and Jordan hit this some um, in his message a couple weeks ago, was that as we get into the beginning of verse 5, from verses 1 through 6, I think James is primarily addressing um, uh, unbelieving rich people. And then he transitions from speaking to unbelievers to speaking to believers in verse 7. And I think that's only reemphasized in verse 12, above all, my brothers and sisters. So he's he's using familial language there. Mm-hmm. I think he's speaking to believers. And then in verse 13, is any among you suffering? And so I also think he's speaking not only to believers, but to the community of believers, the church. And so is any among you, are, is any of you in the church suffering? Is any among you sick? Like, I think that's who he's, I think that's who he's talking to. Okay. So is any, is any believer among you spiritually sick? Mm-hmm. What would that be? What's spiritual sickness? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's when you get into like, at the, think of how he started the book right? Where he's talking about the double-minded person. So I think this is, uh, man, go back to your first question. You asked it the first way, uh, in a way that was really helpful. That set up a train of thought that I think was good. 
well, I asked first if they were a believer or non-believer, mm-hmm. and then are they spiritually sick? Is it someone who's doubting, someone who's mm-hmm. um, in darkness, or or is it just someone who's wayward and sinning, someone who's walked away from, like, are, is it all of those things? Is mm-hmm. it more so one thing? Is it depression? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I certainly think it could be. I th- I think verse thirteen is is speaking a little bit more to the to the depression side of things. Is anyone you suffering? And so, especially come out of the coming out of the verses before it, when they're under like intense oppression, mm-hmm. really like which like, would explain then is anyone suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Yeah. Let him sing. Is anyone cheerful? Is anyone happy? Right. Like, it really, literally, that is. It's like like a happy spirit, you know. Right. So, yeah. so I think that's more towards the depression. I think like a weakness of faith is is the posture that uh, is is a kind of weakness that um, sometimes the weight of the troubles of this world continue to assail us so much that we begin to doubt the goodness of God, that we begin to doubt His faithfulness. Mm. Uh, this and this is where we were talking about the other night. Uh, where he's talking again at the beginning of the book of the double-minded person, where uh, let that person ask for wisdom. Um, let's see if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. So it seems as though there is a kind of weakness in faith. There's there's one kind that that doesn't have wisdom, goes like, I'm struggling here. Like, I'm feeling weak in my faith, either because of the circumstances of this life or because of something else, and goes, I need help to remain faithful to remain in the faith. I'm, I'm having doubts. I'm having struggles. I'm having, uh, and it's not wrong to have questions, but I also think there's a kind of doubting that is sinful. It's the kind of doubting that goes like that asks the question, but doesn't really honestly care about the answer and goes, I'm going to do whatever I want anyway. So not all doubting is sin, right? You can ask questions, and we should ask questions. Mm-hmm. Someone who is in a in a time of their life that has questions or doubting, but is saying, "I need help, mm-hmm. help, help my unbelief." Yeah, <laughs> uh, yep. that's that's not sinful. But what you're saying is someone who is doubting and does not care, doesn't care, or or won't listen, like. I th- we've probably encountered people that um, that will ask a question, but even by the way that they listen, you can tell like you didn't actually want an answer. Mm. You just wanted a you just wanted a fight, right? Or you you're asking a question to maybe posture to go like I'm open, mm-hmm. but you can tell by the way they listen or don't listen after they ask a question, going like you're not actually open. You're even before you asked that question, you had already made up your mind on where you're going. And I mm-hmm. think that's what, if you go back to that message uh, from James chapter one about that double-minded person um, who uh, let him ask in faith without doubting the the kind of faith that asks the, the kind of doubting faith is the faith that it's like, like when you ask, you've already made up your mind. 
before you were even given an answer Mm -hmm. kind of thing. So, okay, I have another question. Is that your answer? Okay. Yeah. So is all spiritual sickness a result of sin? All spiritual sickness. So a we we see of examples sin. of the in the Bible that not all physical sickness is a result of sin. Mm-hmm. Is all spiritual sickness a result of sin? Oh, um, it, yes and no. It, and here's what I'll say: in the same way that that when people die. It's not always their death isn't always a direct result of sin. Mm-hmm. It's at least an indirect result of sin. Because death is a result. Because of sin. death is a result right. of sin. And so I said so I go is is spiritual sickness is weakness in faith always a result of sin? I go, no. So a very godly person could go through a season of spiritual sickness oh absolutely i and i would say a paradigm that's that's been helpful for me so we're talking more in the verse 14 and 15 range but even when we get even if we back up to the verse 13 we go can a spiritually mature person struggle with depression for for their whole life i go charles spurgeon did Mm. and He's like, I got, he's kind of like the most spiritually mature person, like apart from like the apostle Paul, right. Where it's like, man, but I, but he didn't sit in his depression Mm -hmm. either. Like his depression pushed him to his knees and pushed him towards the Lord. Mm -hmm. And he had that pretty much his whole life, at Mm -hmm. least from what we can tell in, in his writings and, and, and things that were written about him. And so I go like, that kind of uh, weakness of faith, mm-hmm. um, I go like, man, but he sure seemed like he was strong in his faith. It was mm-hmm. almost like it was like it cri- like Christ's power was made perfect in his weakness. Right. I go like, yeah, that weakness that he experienced in his depression at times in his weak in his weak faith uh, sure seemed over the course of his life to be the the platform on which the power of Christ stood. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that had to do, my guess is with his with his uh, with the community of faith around him mm-hmm. and with his own spiritual disciplines. Like that's one of the things I said on Sunday was that so there was a you can tell that somebody is <clears throat> is sick in their spiritually sick when they're resisting uh Unre- like uh, resisting repenting from consistent sin, like they're resistant to that. It's like the person that it's like they're sleeping with their girlfriend, all like they're just they're staying over at their house, and you keep confronting me, and they just keep changing the topic. And they just don't want to talk about it, and mm-hmm. they're like, and, it, and it's as though they've created a segment, like they've compartmentalized it, where it's like I can I can still flourish spiritually, yet hold on to this pet sin, right? And it's like. No, I don't, I don't think there's that. I think there's a spiritual sickness that that consistently that consistently neglects the like means of grace that God has given us. We've talked about this some uh, quite a bit, at least in the equipping classes, with habits of grace and then with foundations of our faith here in the last week, where God has given us the the spiritual delight of of uh, 
communing with him through his word, Mm -hmm. communing with him in prayer, uh, being within the community of faith where we consistently encourage one another, spur each other on like people who have no interest in reading their Bible, no, no, even little desire to talk to God, no desire to be around other believers, like no desire to be generous, no concern for the poor. I go, that's a person who's spiritually sick. Like their faith is weakening by the day. And Mm. we need to be the kind of people that go to people like that. Because I go like those things in and of themselves, it's like that is not according to the will of God. Right. Right. And so I'm like, man, if, if it's not sin, it sure isn't healthy. Right. And either one, I'm, I'm just as concerned Right. for, for the spiritual state of that person. And I need that too. Mm-hmm. Like we all do. No one's immune from it. Right. Well, and that's what it's talking about. You see in verse 15, uh, the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Yeah. So if he's, if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. But I love how it turns right from there to say, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Just like you said, mm-hmm. we are our brother's keepers. So, so that you may be healed. Yeah. Confess your sins so you may be healed. Yeah. Like, because to not confess your sins means that you're still sick. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, and I think you're right. That was a good thing to point out. Like if, uh, let me see here. Uh, Lord, if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Not since he has forgiven. Since he has committed sins, if he has committed sins. So what James is saying is like, like there is a weakness either physically or spiritually, I think primarily here, but both it's like, sometimes it could be a result of sin. Sometimes it, it isn't. Yeah. But at least we need to have a category that it's like the state of our physical bodies and the state of our soul. Uh, we need to consider, is there unrepentant sin in our life? Mm -hmm. And is God... In, in sickness of either way, trying to get our attention and for us to love one another enough, not in some sort of like interrogation, not to jump to where it's like, it's, you know, it's like, dude, I got allergies. Okay. That, that's just like me having seasonal allergies isn't like, man, it seems like every fall you really have a sin problem. You know, it's like, no man, it just like... Just because the weather's this way. Allergies are a result of the fall. They are a result of the fall. And mosquitoes, too. Um, <laughs> but to at least like to have a category. Now, what we don't want to do is is to become Job's friends. Right. Where we become dogmatic about, well, you're experiencing this physically or spiritually, and I know it's because you've sinned. Right. Like, that's where Job's friends went wrong. I don't think it was necessarily because they had a category that... This could be a result of sin. It was because of their continual persistence that it was. Mm. It's like, no, that's where they started to go off the rails. I'm like, that's a good friend to at least ask the question. It's not a good friend to, upon self-examination of the person who's suffering, and they go, honestly, I can't think of anything. I've been Mm. asking the Lord to show me, is there, is there something? Like you would think you would know Mm -hmm. if there, if, if there's unrepentant sin. But their continual like assertion that no, it's because of this, and you're just lying to us. It's like mm. nah, there there's something else going on here. It's not because this man sinned or his parents, but that the work of God might be displayed in him. Like there are categories for that too. Yeah. Any other thoughts on this passage? I mean, we're already at fifty-one minutes, right? So 
this would have been in addition to whatever 40, mm-hmm. 40 minute kind of thing. So you can see why uh, we wanted to do this extra podcast was to kind of put some of these things in here uh, that we just couldn't hit in the message. And th- I mean, there are things that um, that we didn't even get into, but we kind of wanted to hit some of the main things as it related to like anointing with oil, calling the elders. Uh, what in the world is with this seemingly out of the blue reference to Elijah? Hopefully that uh, kind of recounting that uh, that story in first Kings 16 through 18, it's helpful. I, again, I, again, I would encourage you to go read that. Um, because James used that for a reason, right? Like as he's, these are the last words of his sermon of this book to these people. And so he's not going to be flipping with his words. Like he uses that reference for a particular reason. And I think it's helpful, uh, in helping us understand, uh, what is, I think, at least in some way, the spiritual nature of the sickness that James is, is at least trying to create a category for, for us as believers. So, mm. yeah, this is a kind of thing. Um, and I know this is the last week of connection groups, but, but I would encourage you as you read the Bible, uh, Sarah and I really, we just decided to hit record on a conversation or a couple conversations that we have had over the last week. Yeah. Um, because this is what we want you to cultivate in your friendships and your connection groups and your marriages. Like as you read the Bible and there are confusing things, take time to study it out and take time to discuss it uh, with the people around you, with fellow believers and and do theology in community. Because mm-hmm. um, these conversations have only sharpened uh, sharpened us as we've had them. Um, yeah. Like I said, it hasn't made us like super dogmatic about stuff, but it has really helped the process of learning. And ultimately, as we grow in our, in our understanding of God, we'll, we will grow in our love of God. Uh, the heart can't love what the mind hasn't uh, seen. And so, yeah, hopefully this has been helpful and we appreciate you taking the almost hour to <laughs> listen to us just kind of ramble a little bit about what we saw in James chapter five. So, um, we might do, we're not going to do this for every message, but especially for messages with, uh, with some kind of sticky passages like this, uh, we'll, we'll try to continue to learn together and to love one another through doing theology together and in conversation. So next week we begin our series on the minor prophets called the God who speaks. And the first prophet we're looking at is the book of Hosea. So if you got some extra time this week, go ahead and listen or listen. You could listen to Hosea, Mm -hmm. um, but read Hosea and, um, go to our website there on the live stream page. There's a, on the left hand side, you can click the minor prophets reading plan. And there's a video linked on that page where you can watch a short introductory video from the Bible project on the book of Hosea and on every other, uh, minor prophet that we'll be going through in this series. And so be sure to read the book and to watch the introductory video uh, each week before you listen to the message. uh, And that'll help you understand the minor prophets as we go through together. So have a great week.